Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, hurdles, and triumphs in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Welcome to another episode of Care Captains. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Salvatore Viscomi, an exceptional individual who embodies the spirit of a physician-turned-entrepreneur. Salvatore's journey is a unique blend of science and business, beginning with his academic roots in neuropsychology at Columbia and transitioning through a medical career at Brigham and Women's Hospital. It was here that he co-founded a pioneering teleradiology startup, marking a pivotal moment in his career. In 2018, Salvatore took a bold leap, fully immersing himself in the entrepreneurial world. His extensive experience in academia as a chairman and residency director now fuels his passion for guiding and investing in various innovative companies. In this episode, Salvatore will also share insights into his latest startup, Karna Health. This venture, born from a simple conversation about point-of-care devices, has blossomed into a cutting-edge digital platform focusing on chronic kidney disease. Join us as we explore Salvatore's journey, his insights into entrepreneurship, and the innovative strides he's making with Karna Health. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Care Captains. Today, I'm delighted to have Salvatore Viscomi on the show, a physician entrepreneur. Salvatore, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, Norbert. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you very much for coming. And when I had a look at your profile, these two words, physician entrepreneur, caught my eyes very much. So what's your career story, Salvatore? So my career story is that I was a neuropsychology major at Columbia, and then I took a few years off trying to understand what I really wanted to do. And then I, I landed on, on medicine. But there was always a part of me that wanted to be part of the commercial world. But I chose medicine, and I thought it was sort of a black and white decision. And it was at my during my residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital, during my third year, where I had a startup idea for teleradiology practice. And at the time, there was only one teleradiology service in the world, and it was a group that was doing it out of Australia. So myself and two other co-residents thought, hmm, what if we did this here in the United States as a joint venture with the Brigham? And, and so taking that idea and, and really you know, creating a business plan and proposing it to Brigham and Harvard as a joint venture, and ultimately going forward with it was was a good experience. It took me away from the trajectory of becoming academic physician, you know, with publishing and research, and, and in terms of being a creator, creator of new services, creator of taking ideas into businesses. And so it was that early experience at a young age where there weren't many mentors that had that experience. So it was really learning on the ground. And then you know, I was sort of a springboard to do other things outside of my medical specialty. And and therefore, it would, all those other opportunities were outside of academics. So I stayed at academics at Brigham and Women's and Harvard until 2018. So a pretty long career there. You know, I was chairman of one of the community hospitals, admissions director of residency. But but my my sort of my passions for entrepreneurship were outside of my medical specialty because there was always the thirst to learn something new and different. Uh, and then in 2018, I left. Uh, I left Brigham and at full, you know, 100% devoted to the companies that I start, 
companies that I support as an investor or an advisor or a board member. And so it's been a journey of being a part-time entrepreneur to it's where I spend most of my time today. You left medicine 2018 and then you jumped into entrepreneurship. You support several companies. What are those? How do you select these various opportunities, Salvatore? Early on in my career, I gravitated to things where I had a lot of, you know, expertise in. The latter groups that I that I advise are actually things that I, I I don't necessarily have expertise in, but I can support them in terms of strategy, uh, investment advice, how to you know how to build a company, how to build a board, and it's things that I feel like that I can um, I, I I really gravitate to people, right? So for me, it's the founders, and so if there are founders that I, I believe, I trust in, and I like their mission, I believe in their mission, those are companies that I, I would look to invest and, and or advise for. And there are several in Europe that are currently doing that. It's really as much as, you know, I, I love my own startup and most of my time there, it's really rewarding to uh, support younger entrepreneurs with great ideas, really brilliant, but perhaps not with the experience of having previous successes and failures. And, you know, sharing those experiences allows them to sometimes avoid some pitfalls that they otherwise may have. So how did you get yourself familiar with the business of, of these companies, with investment plan you mentioned? Maybe you're also familiar with financial questions. So how did you learn all these elements of running a company? Yeah, I think um, it was baptism by fire with my first startup because there wasn't a support structure within the academic institution I was at to to have things. So we had our own marketing. We had our we were our own chief financial officer. We ran our own budget, and and so a lot of that learning happened on the job. The medical school sends uh, every year or every few years a cohort of doctors to Harvard Business School. So I was part of that cohort in. 2016. So I spent a year in business school, and it was, it was really helpful in many aspects. One from you know some of the knowledge you learn, and you know from the case studies, but also from the people that you meet. Spend a lot of time with the traditional business school student, and then obviously the professors there. So so it was both a bit of on the job training and a little bit of formal training at Harvard Business School. A lot of learning happens through my you know the, the teams that I form that I learn from, and so. No entrepreneur can have all the skills or, you know, a high enough skill set as the company scales. And so bringing on people that have those expertise that you like working with. And, and to me, that's probably one of the most important skills is uh, building the team because I feel like many companies more often fail for lack of team chemistry rather than the technology failing. And so my experience has been be very careful and choosing your co-founders, choosing your executives, choosing your investors, choosing your board. The people that you bring into your circle early on uh, can make the difference of success or failure. Let's stay on this topic. You really come across as a, as a people manager and you are a connector. So how do you choose your team? What are these various attributes, what you look at? You already mentioned the trust when you work with various entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, you know, the, the easiest one and, you know, is I was an admissions director at Harvard residency program for a while. And sometimes the only time you have a chance to meet somebody is through an interview and you really have never worked with them before. In, in my world today, it's a bit different because, uh, you know, having had experience, I sort of bring people from my past that I enjoyed working with and I bring them into new, new ventures and then always find people that have worked with others. So, 
So you know that person's experience. You may not work with them, but somebody you trust. So so I think it's relying on your network to sort of recommend somebody. So for example, building Karna Health and needing expertise in AI, needing expertise in insurance and reimbursement, you know, bringing in people that I may not have worked with before. That warm introduction is, I think, helpful on both sides, right? It's helpful for the person you're trying to recruit, knowing that you're a trusted entity. And it's it's helpful for me that that this person has had success and I know their attributes beforehand, also know about their sort of personal characteristics. Absolutely. So it's referral, it's warm introduction and, and the expertise to select these colleagues. And staying on this, you are a connector. How do you keep your network active and growing? This is really a big investment in your daily time, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's, it's a good question. I mean, some of it happens organically through just going to meetings and and being introduced and and sometimes they're they're a bit random encounters you meet people at different events through the you know Forbes Technology Council I've been able to you know write some pieces that attract people that are interested in what I'm writing and so there are, those are more organized processes in place yeah I think you know LinkedIn is you know I'm not very much on social media but LinkedIn has been really helpful in many ways, in terms of finding people with very specific expertise or, or experiences that would be helpful to us. And, and then, you know, you find somebody and you see who they're connected with, and then you can ask the person that you know, you know, what is your experience with this? So there've been a lot of, I feel like a lot of introductions have been made via LinkedIn in some format. You know, there are certain meetings that I think are, are quite helpful, like the meetings that are a bit smaller and cozier. I was at the Forbes health summit in New York City this week and a fairly small group of people, but you know, pretty high powered group. And those meetings also allow for quite a bit of networking. Very practical advice. I already picked up Forbes Health Summit, what I probably should attend. Thank you for the tip. And of course, LinkedIn. Yeah. I'm a great believer of connecting and helping each other. You previously already mentioned your new venture, Karna Health. Before what you do, can you explain why did you start this new venture, Salvatore? Yeah, this is one that's interesting because uh, it, it didn't start off with an idea. It started off with a conversation with a friend who was a chief medical officer of a medical device company that had technology around point-of-care devices that were, that were created for a very different reason than we're using them today. They were created for clinical trials, mostly in Europe. So the leadership of the medical device company reached out to me uh, more for due diligence. And they said, we have a portfolio of biomarker testing in a point of care, self-testing sort of capacity. What are your thoughts on this? And so I reviewed the portfolio of testing, you know, and I was, I was, I was wowed. I was like, well, I didn't know as a physician that you can measure creatinine, UACR, lipids, uric acid in, in, in smaller devices and, and have clinical grade devices. I, I thought, well, then this is during COVID. I said, what a, you know, we know the direction the world is going. Community testing, we know that um, self-testing are more accepted. They're scalable. It's what patients want. It's what doctors accept. And so my recommendation to the medical device company, including the CEO, was that they build a digital arm for their company. And the response was, you know, our expertise is in building devices, selling devices, and doing R&D and new devices. But we would support you if you had ideas on on building a digital platform. And so. So it was a bit of one of those things that I, I would say, you know, fortuitous because the opportunity came to me. And so 
So I took some time thinking about who I needed to bring in. And so we brought in a team and really self-funded this for, for quite a while. And we built a digital platform that is really agnostic to the manufactured devices, but it's really focused today, taking advantage of the only clinical grade creatinine meter and also doing a UACR, which are the tools you need for you know chronic kidney disease screening in a really scalable way. So the idea is take these devices, use them to identify stage people with CKD, and then using the platform to go much further beyond that, right? It's going to go to tracking patients to make sure they get the care they need, sharing the information with nephrologists, and then monitoring patients over time, and ultimately becoming really a AI-enabled platform with incredible data on the, the process of CKD in each individual and their risk factors, making predictions about how quickly they'll progress and what the right therapy may be. And, and so CKD is just one example of, of many chronic diseases that we can monitor in a way that doesn't require the typical hospital central laboratory setting. And it's a way that's scalable in, in all parts of the world in a, in a highly prevalent disease that's getting worse year after year. And, and similarly, we have technology to do point of care testing in pharmacies. We know that patients prefer care in pharmacies rather than in traditional care. And we know that there are many parts of the world where there are long wait times for laboratories, for seeing your general doctor. And so enabling pharmacists who are super smart, well-trained, and have capacity to do more than they're doing today. Nothing is scalable without a digital platform that understands the patient, empowers the patient, tracks the patient to make sure they need to go uh, and, and when to go to see medical care when needed. How can I envision this, that you partner with the various point-of-care device manufacturers and you are the interface, the software interface, which pulls these data from the devices, interprets them, and provides these easy-to-understand reports to the physicians, to the caretakers, or you are rather a standalone software and maybe you have other ways of integrating and pulling in the biomarker results. How does that exactly work, Salvatore? Yeah. So, you know, I'll give you the example of the uh, kidney disease monitoring. We use, in this example, we'll use two devices from Nova Biomedical, who is our partner. Um, one is a finger prick blood test uh, that measures creatinine and EGFR. The second test is a urine test that measures something called urine albumin creatinine ratio, which are the two tests that really give you a comprehensive way of staging chronic kidney disease. We partner, you know, so we launched last week and uh, give you an example with the government of Bermuda. So we are screening a high risk population in different settings in the community. We test them with those two tests. Those tests go into our platform. Now you can imagine without the platform, you have two numbers and you give somebody a stage of work chronic kidney disease. Unfortunately, those patients we know would get lost to follow up. They might not care they need. And so we are an end to end solution. So we make sure that the, the patients are accurately tested. We capture all the relevant history, family history, and other information on the platform. That information gets communicated to the patient through their app. So they're aware of the results and they can track themselves, which is really important for higher adherence is that patients are actively involved in knowing about their disease and their awareness of it. That information gets shared with their doctors, both their general doctor. And in some cases, and not infrequently, we're finding patients that are screened that are at a stage already that they need a nephrologist. 
And so the platform will send those patients to that data to the nephrologist. And lastly, we make sure that patients are going where they need to. You know, we find in many cases that patients that are supposed to see a nephrologist may not go there. They, they may not have insurance. They may be underinsured. They may have a high copay. In those cases, we, we try to problem solve with the government saying, these are patients you really want to manage. And so we identify what the obstacles are. In some cases, um, the referring doctor doesn't refer. The, the GP may hang on to that patient, and we really want that patient to have specialty care. We're trying to make doctors' lives easier by making sure they're taking care of the patients that they can actually make a difference for. But we have patients engaged in their own care, right? So there are alerts about when to test next alerts when to talk to their doctor. It's working quite well for chronic kidney disease because it's it's highly prevalent and 90% of people with chronic kidney disease in the world are unaware that they have it. And so the, the first step that we do is we're educating. We're telling people that you want to identify earlier because there are many things you can do to prevent yourself from going to the unpleasant sequelae, which are dialysis and transplant, which are also exceedingly expensive. They can take up to up to 10% of a, the government's healthcare budget. And so we feel that we can make a tremendous impact in the quality of life of people by avoiding dialysis, but also there's significant healthcare savings. And we know Deloitte did a study that for every dollar in prevention for CKD, there's a healthcare savings of $45. Uh, this is a problem that's getting worse year after year there have not been effective scalable solutions. So we're taking technology and we're bringing it to the patient rather than expecting patients that are asymptomatic to show up to the medical conventional medical system and saying, hey, screen me for CKD. A lot of what we do is awareness. What were these pivotal challenges until this very important uh, screening program and how did you sorted them out? You know, we're working with several governments. I think the the easier part which was unexpected for me, was to get the buy-in from the governments. And I think because of the awareness of how much they're spending and how this is a challenge for them, you know, from a financial aspect, that was easier than expected, right? Because you always think government is going to move slowly. The government's been great. Like Bermuda gave us an innovation award. So the challenge has been from the healthcare providers and in a couple of ways. So in one way is that we're asking some doctors, right, who are doing some of the screening themselves to, you know, it's an extra burden on them, right? Because now we're identifying more people that they need to see because they're going to go back to their general doctors as someone that another probably need to follow up on. We also know that there are not enough nephrologists in the world to manage the CKD that's there, right? There are 900 million people in the world with CKD. And so our platform really needs to be aware that we need to upskill general doctors, nurses in parts of the world where they're not going to be able to see nephrologists, but we still want those patients to be on a different pathway to avoid dialysis. Yeah, the other challenges are really around why someone may not seek the help they can. And there are places in the world that it's really costly to see a specialist. There may be high copays. And so navigating those things ahead of time, right? Because you really need to negotiate with the government saying, you know, we have a successful platform, but we can't be successful in terms of delivering the care that you're going to want to see without you changing some policies. And sometimes those policies are around copays and referral sort of patterns and incentivizing doctors to want to screen, to want to know that there are additional patients in their practice that may have chronic kidney disease. I would like to a little bit come back to the healthcare providers. You mentioned that it was really difficult to get them on board. Uh, you are a physician by training as well. 
What are these, these major challenges in adopting novel digital technologies from the physician's perspective? There's a couple of things, right? We know that there's a high burnout rate. There are challenges with pre-authorizations and referrals. So they're spending a lot more paperwork. We know that EHR systems, even though they're wonderful on many levels, they friction point for, for doctors. It's an additional thing to log into. And while they see like this is great for patients, from, from the perspective of population screening, in terms of their own practice, it's one more additional thing that they may or may not get reimbursed for. And so understanding that uh, the platform in many cases needs to, in parts of the world, needs to be able to work with other providers, right? It may be nurses, it may be pharmacists, it may be places where there are no doctors, right? So, you know, we know that a lot of screening programs are very effective at, at attracting women at risk, but not males, right? That means that we need to go into the community and, and go where we may be present. So for example, you know, we have plans to to screen at barbershops, for example. This is a place where you can have conversations with them and, and you get people that are not necessarily seeing their doctor on a regular basis. And so understanding some of the challenges that doctors have but also advocating for them. So when we speak to the ministries of health, we let them know all the pieces of the puzzle. You know, we have the technology piece, the nephrologists are on board because they will accept the patients. We need to incentivize doctors, nurses, pharmacists to do that. And an important way of incentivizing them from their perspective is to make sure that if doctors are spending extra time doing something that benefits the ministry of health, that there is a incentivization for them to participate in the program. From a government perspective, they, they'll say doctors should be doing this because it's the right thing to do. I agree with that. You know, as a physician, it's like we should do what's best for the patient. The problem is, is that it hasn't been working. We know that there are many chronic diseases that we're failing at. And so we really need some dis disruptive way of, of thinking that to get the doctors aligned with the public health officials to make sure that we're all on the same mission. And so the governments need to invest in the doctors, in the nurses, in the pharmacists, because they will benefit ultimately from preventing expensive complications from some of these chronic diseases. Got you. And, and I think you nicely alluded to the policy challenges, uh, provider adoption challenges, reimbursement. Did you face any technical problems, any regulatory issues by developing coronary health application? Fortunately, that we, we haven't. We've, you know, because of the way we built the platform, we built it to make, make all the guidelines internationally. The manufacturer has the responsibility of all the regulatory clearances. So we rely on them on the device side. Ultimately, where we like to see our platform go in the future is that it'll be regulated device as well, because in addition to providing patients with the right pathway, we believe we're going to collect data that's going to allow us to do a lot more. Um, and so the, this upskilling of other providers in the healthcare system is important and being able to guide them in terms of what might be the right therapy for that patient, right? So really getting into personalized care. And at some point, that's when we will become a regulated platform. The digital platform is built in a, in a very compliant way. But we've been supportive of our our partner manufacturers in terms of where if there are parts of the world that we have relationships with in terms of you know making sure that devices go down the pathway of the regulatory applications.
you have Italian heritage, uh, you are in the U.S. Uh, I'm just wondering that how do you see this entrepreneurship from the U.S. perspective, European perspective, risk-taking? What's your take on uh, those international differences in, in entrepreneurship? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so you know, I was born in Italy and I spend a lot of time in Europe and I'm part of a family office that has uh, offices in, in London and, and in New York. I think the biggest difference is as an early stage company, it was easier for an entrepreneur in the United States with an idea and to get support for from investors on a significant level. And obviously there's a, a more risk averse environment in Europe and there are some great potential companies that have struggled to get funding and the check sizes are, are significantly smaller. And in the US, you see that these there are companies that are failing that have had hundreds and hundreds of million dollars of funding. And there's probably a balance in between that's the right, the right measure. But the, the companies that I support in Europe, many of them ultimately come to the United States uh, for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons is that they're more likely to get funding at a higher level here. They're more likely to get a valuation that's higher, and they're more likely to get uh, uh, the check sizes that are needed to scale their businesses, which is great for the United States because we bring on these great entrepreneurs from all over the world. But I it does lead to, I think, a brain drain in parts of the world because we are taking some of their youngest, brightest, creative people. There are changes in Europe. There, there's more venture capital companies. But the US right now, I feel, has a, a major advantage in terms of the support that these young entrepreneurs need. Great overview. And coming back a little bit to the funding, Karna Health, you said that in the beginning, um, uh, you and uh, your founders bootstrapped it. Are you venture back now, or maybe the manufacturers who are working with provide you some kind of funding? So, how do you keep the lights on Salvatore? Sure, it's a great question. So, you know, we self funded because, you know, our, our team was an experienced team, which included some people in the venture world. We did a friends and family safe recently that we oversubscribed and we'll be doing a price round imminently that's already committed to as well. I think we've, we've at the stage we're at, we've been attracting strategic investors that are in the, in the healthcare and digital health space. And then we'll do the venture round probably in first, second quarter of 2024 which we've socialized with them. A lot of reasons is it's important for us, our cap table, to have not only people that are supporting us financially, but are supporting us with their networks. And it's been very advantageous to us in terms of our, our investors today are people that we partner with and are opening up doors for us. And as we develop more and have more success internationally and more patience on the platform, I think it'll be a better time for us to, to talk to the venture. and. And we're also building our AI capabilities. So we know that will add a lot of value to the company as well. There's a lot of enthusiasm for what we do. And so I anticipate that'll be sometime, you know, next year. You already a little bit alluded to success criteria and, and maybe what is the impact, what you hope to achieve with Karna Health. So, so what are the success metrics, uh, what you are aiming for in the next two, three years, Salvatore? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's really taking these uh, programs that we're doing in smaller countries today, right? So we're doing countries that have smaller populations and, and learning from those experiences in terms of how to best operationalize those and and understanding how a program may be very successful in one country and you can't just copy and paste it in others. 
it's really learning from all those experiences and then be able to present solutions to larger populations. And so I think it's really, you know, scaling, but in a measured way, uh, because, and we want the platform to evolve as well, right? So the platform will become more robust, we'll have, you know, more functionality to it. And then we'll also increase the the amount of testing, right? So today we're doing mostly chronic kidney disease screening. But as you know, many of these patients have other comorbidities, right? So we can add in the cardiometabolic testing as well. We'll add obviously physiologic testing. And so ultimately we'll be doing quite a bit more, right? So blood testing, urine testing, physiologic testing. Obviously there's some uh, amazing new technologies that are less invasive that can provide biometric data. So we'll incorporate all the technology that comes out if it fits into a solution that we need. And as I said, like, you know, ultimately become a regulated device. So I think that's the journey over the next few years. But, you know, one of our advisors early on is Dido Harding in the House of Lords. And she asked me, you know, you know, what would be success in five years? And and to me, it's that while we can do many diseases, even if we were successful in, in making an impact in chronic kidney disease, where the 900 million people in the world were unaware, if we made them aware and put many of them on a different pathway, you know, we've saved the lives of many people. We improved the quality of life of the patient and their families. And we've saved a lot of money for governments that can go to other to other healthcare problems instead of dialysis and transplant. You are also an active member of the Forbes Technology Council. You get together with other founders, other health technology experts, and you share a little bit of insights. How does this think tank, how does this platform work? Yeah, no, it's it's nice. It gives you an opportunity to to write and and share your thoughts and and to get feedback from the Forbes editors. So that's quite nice. And then it puts you in, in small groups. And they, these are groups of people that are doing things very differently, but we, we all, we all share similar challenges. And so it's been nice to learn from others' experiences and in many cases to, to ultimately collaborate, right? Because it's a pretty small world when it comes down to digital health. It's expanded my network of, of people for advisorships uh, and potential future partnerships. Uh, and I, I really enjoy sort of the feedback of, of that, you know, one of the best learnings is when people tell you about their failures, it, it allows us to have access to people who have done things certain way that maybe didn't work and, and they could share their experiences so we can avoid some of those same problems. Coming back a little bit to the entrepreneurship and uh, to various uh, startups, uh, entrepreneurship is really rosy and looks fancy from the outside, but I think it's really hard. From your point of view, what makes a successful entrepreneur what are these characteristics yeah i think it's certainly it's it's hard work right it's you know it looks glamorous from the outside as you know but i, I think you'll you'll never work harder than than being an entrepreneur because it's it's yours right and early on it's 24 7 it's a serious commitment and other part is once you have that level of commitment and you feel like you have a great idea it is really finding the team to support you. I think it's very rare that you can be a lone wolf in creating something that's uh, significant and choosing your co-founders, choosing your leadership team, choosing your investors, every single part of that, part of the fabric of the company is really important early on. It's very delicate. I see a lot of companies that have 
great technology, incredibly educated and smart people. And if a lot of challenges are within the team and they don't move the product forward, I see that as a problem. So there are so many obstacles that are external. I think it's really important that that the foundation of the company is very strong. And so that starts with the people. And, and then clearly, uh, there has to be financial support, right? So bringing in a network has support from investors is going to be really important. I'd say those are the components. I mean, the, the first step is really, you know, you have the idea, you know, you think you can create the technology, it solves a real problem. And, and clearly, the one thing I haven't said yet is none of this matters unless you're passionate about what you're doing. And so you have to really believe in it. It's not, I'm not a nephrologist by training. I knew a lot about CKD, but I know a lot more now. It's become an obsession now, right? Because I want to know everything about it. I want to know all parts of the world and what the different contributors to the disease are, how it's evolving over time. And so I think having that level of obsession is, is needed. Um, to be a successful entrepreneur, I wake up every day and it drives me and it drives my my co-founders, drives our advisors, and it's a bit infectious, right? So if you as a founder have that passion, you can sort of get the people around you to buy into it as well. This passion definitely comes across very, very strong. And also, as you mentioned, hard work and commitment is essential building blocks here. How did you make this very difficult carrier steps. Was it a conscious move or you were just uh, having some hunch? As a doctor, it's so much time and energy and training, many hours and to become an expert in something. And I think it's difficult for most doctors to sort of deviate from that because of the risk what it would take to depart from that pathway that required so much time and commitment, you know, blood and sweat to get there. For me, it was what got me excited. And, and what got me excited in healthcare is that we're trying to take care of patients. And you can do that in many ways. You know, I may not be uh, impacting patients one-on-one. I'm building something that has the potential to impact millions of lives. And so I think it's uh, taking you know, your skills as a doctor and applying them in a different way. And I don't think it's meant for everybody, right? But I do think there, there are people in the world, doctors and others that have a D, their DNA is uh, to not necessarily do the same thing, you know, for their entire career. And so there are some people that really enjoy, they're going to be, they're going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon for 40, 50 years. And that's what gives them pleasure. There are other people that, you know, for five, 10 years, they like to do something and then, and they get the bug to do something else. And I, I'm, I'm one of those people. So yeah, you have to be a builder. Like my, my father was a a mason and construction worker and he you know he built things from the ground up and like building things as well salvatore i really enjoyed the discussion thank you very much for all your insights it was really a pleasure having you on care captains thank you norbert i always always love chatting with you thanks for having me i hope you have enjoyed another episode of care captains see you next week